Let me say a prayer and we'll start talking about this unbelievable story. Lord, thank you so much for everyone here, for their heart to study your word. Lord, we want to know the truth. We want to take it into our hearts and we want it to come out through our hands and our mouths and encouragement, forgiveness. Father, we pray that we would be instruments of your peace and your love in this world and that we might bring truth with grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you guys probably know, I tell you this every time, but this is the number you can text questions during class. I think we'll have a lot of questions in this uh, particular series, and we should, because I want to make sure we get to the issues that are on your mind. But uh, to start with, this series, Job is 42 chapters, so I'm thinking like 42 weeks. You guys good with that? No. So we're going to do, I want to hit the big themes and I want you to feel the story of Job. But what I want to start with is I want to tell you why this book is even in the Bible and what it's about. So we'll probably spend the next six weeks or so, six or seven weeks. We can actually, I mean, we make all this up, which you can probably tell like, yeah, we know. And so we can go at the pace we want to go. If you have a lot of questions, we'll slow down. But basically six or seven weeks, I think will be you know, long enough to do justice to the themes and short enough that you can see the whole scope of the book and you don't get lost in the weeds. So that is what we will do. Let me start by just talking about our world and human history. You know, I put some pictures of, of suffering and some injustice and evil. And I know that's kind of a downer, but you see this on social media, you see it on television all the time. You look around our world, there's, there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of evil things being done by people to other people. There's some injustice, people suffering in ways that they don't deserve. It's just not right. It's not, it offends our sense of fairness, if you will. Well, this has been true for all of human history. And people have tried to answer this fundamental question. Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't like that phrase, good people, but you understand what I'm saying is, why do children suffer? Why do people die of diseases and suffer? I mean, why is the world made this way? Why do these things happen? Why is there injustice? Why do people act the way they do? And so people have tried to answer this in a lot of ways. So, about 500 years before Jesus was born, so about five, actually about 550 BC, there's a guy born in India. He later becomes known as Buddha. This was the primary question on his mind. And in fact, it is the fundamental pursuit of Buddhism. And that is, how do you explain and how do you deal with the suffering that's inevitable in life? Evil, injustice, suffering. Well, Buddhism, make a long story short, the Buddha decided that you basically can overcome suffering by realizing all of that is an illusion. The idea that you are separate from the world is an illusion, and suffering is not real in the sense that you and I think that it is real. And so by overcoming this delusion that we have, that suffering is different from me and evil is different from good, if you can get past that, then you will have no more suffering. You will disconnect. You will detach yourself. Non-attachment is what it's called. So basically, Buddhism said, we're just going to deny that if you think about it differently enough, there won't be any suffering. Well, meanwhile, about 100 years later, over in the Greek world, 
The Greeks are doing an awful lot of evil and injustice to each other. There are a lot of wars, and there was a Greek historian named Thucydides, and he's writing the history of these wars, and it's amazing. It's brutal. It's backstabbing. It's betraying. It's, it's better than any reality TV show you've ever seen. But here's what they thought. They said, yep, there's evil, there's injustice, there are the weak oppressing the strong, or the strong oppressing the weak. And here's what they thought. They said, the way the world works is that the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. The strong do what they want and the weak suffer what they must. In other words, might makes right. So they didn't deny suffering in the world. They just said, you just want to be on top. Well, time goes on. Along comes a guy named Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, 1800s AD, and I'm, I'm painting with a pretty broad brush here, but basically looks at suffering in the world and says, you know, I'm not really concerned about that, but my theory is survival of the fittest, natural selection. You look at the animal kingdom, do you see a whole bunch of law courts there and say, hey, Mr. Lion, that was pretty unkind what you did to that antelope. No, in fact, that's virtuous. Survival of the fittest. In other words, the theory, the Darwinian theory of evolution counts on the fact that might makes right, that whoever wins is the one that goes on. And so there's no such thing as what's just, what's not just. It's survival of the fittest. Well, just in a nutshell though, there's something about all of those ideas that really go counter to something that seems to be wired inside of us. We seem to be wired to think that there really is such a thing as injustice and evil and suffering that is not deserved. The Bible agrees with that. And the Bible would even say, yes, and matter of fact, you are wired to think that because you are created in the image of God. You're not an accident. You're not the survival of the fittest. You matter. You're created in the image of God. And part of that is wanting to do justice, wanting to do what's right. And so you are wired that way. But it leaves us with this problem. How then do we deal with evil and suffering in the world? And we typically hear that as, why doesn't God stop that from happening? Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Why does he let these things continue? So the question then becomes, Peter Kraft has uh, written a really good book about this. He's a Catholic theologian. He said, he wants to frame it this way, is suffering worth it? In other words, the question for the secular world is, how can I avoid suffering at any cost? And if that means you have to suffer more, fine with me. I want to live well. That's why you see economic oppression. You see rich countries basically exploiting poorer countries. I'm not saying that always happens, but look around our world. It certainly does, doesn't it? Because suffering is bad, and the only thing you can do is don't. If the other guy suffers, fine, as long as I don't. Well, obviously, that's not a biblical point of view, but we still have to say, well, then what is the point of suffering? Is suffering worth it? To answer that question, and here's the interesting thing, to, really, this is just logic. To answer that question, we have to know the end of the story. I mean, we've all heard stories of suffering that later turned out like, oh my goodness, that was the best thing that ever happened. It worked out for good. We've also heard stories where that suffering 
I don't see how it is working out for good. But he makes a good point. To really answer that question, you have to know the end of the story. You have to know the point and the purpose of it all. And only the author of the story knows that. Only the author of the story knows the reason for creation, the purpose of man, and that is exactly what the book of Job is about. The book of Job is the story of a man who faces the most unjust kind of suffering that we've seen in the Bible to that point in time. And as we go through this story over the next six weeks or so, we are going to find that this story wants to address all of those big questions. It also wants to address the smaller questions of why do bad things happen to you and me? We're not just talking about tsunamis. We're not just talking about uh, wars and oppression and refugees. We're also talking about sickness, death, suffering, bankruptcy. Why do, why do we have suffering in our lives when we're trying to do the right thing? The book of Job is a story that addresses those questions. So I want you to understand what we're about to get into is an actual story from the Bible from about probably about 1800 BC. People argue about the date, but think of it in that time frame. About 1800 BC is when Job lived. And his story is the way the Bible wants to cast the answers to this question. So that's what we're gonna be doing, and we're gonna do it like a story. We are going to walk through this with Job. So let's situate ourselves in time and space. And you gotta have a map to do that. You just can't do it otherwise. So we're gonna find out that Job lived in the land of Uz. And no one knows exactly where that is, but probably either right here or right here. So in approximately 1800 BC, let me set that in biblical history. I'm gonna use traditional dates, so we can argue about that later, but my point is, is not about the dates. Think of Abraham. God comes to Abraham, said, move to the land of Canaan, Israel, and uh, I will make a great nation out of you, and he is the father of the Jewish people, God's chosen people throughout. You'll read this through the Old Testament. He's about 2000 BC. Moses is gonna come along about 1400 BC, and he's gonna bring the people out of bondage in Egypt, take them back to the promised land, Canaan, give them the law of Moses. Well, Job is right in between there, in between those two things. And so you don't have the law of Moses. What you have is Abraham, who's just being faithful to God, and you have Job over here who believes in God, wants to serve God, but he's not a Jew. So he's not on that track. He is every man, if you will. So Job lived in this uh, area. He lived in about 1800 in northern Saudi Arabia. The book of Job is beautiful literature. A lot of uh, colleges study this book, not for religious reasons, but purely for literary reasons. Uh, Tennyson said, there's no better poem than the book of Job in any piece of literature. The book of Job breaks into a little narrative, a prologue, which we'll cover most of that in this lesson. And at the very end, chapter uh, about 42, you'll get an epilogue, a little uh, text. Everything else in between there is Hebrew poetry. So when you pick up your Bible, it will be probably in most translations set out kind of like poetry. And that's what it is. And so that's gonna be a hint to us to understanding what it means and what it wants to say. 
So that's where and when we are. There's this real man living in the real world, and we're about to hear the story of what happens to him. We, however, have kind of a box seat. You know, we're up in the box looking down on this event, and we get to be outside observers. We are going to know more than Job knows. We know more than his friends know. It has been given to us to get to observe the whole story. Scene one opens on earth with Job. Scene two that we're going to get into tells us what's going on in the heavens with God. And then scene three comes back down to the earth. And there's some interesting literary structure in that movement, but I'm just going to leave that because I want to get on to the, the bigger themes. But the, the book of Job lets us be outside observers. And you know what? That's exactly what we need to be to understand our own suffering. Because when we're the participant, we don't know any more than Job is going to know in this story. And we may react a lot like Job does. But for us to really understand why do bad things happen to good people, we need to get a bird's eye view of this. And that's what we're going to be. So let's jump into this text. Scene one, meet Job. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. In Hebrew, it's Eov. Uh, in English, it, this looks a lot like Job, but it's Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he avoided or shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He is from the East because he's East of Israel over in Saudi Arabia. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So what is this opening going to tell us about Job? It tells us that he was a God-fearing man, that he was blameless and upright. Now for us, in 21st century Western terms, some of your translations will say he was a perfect man, blameless. We tend to think of that in Western ways, meaning, well, that he never ever did anything wrong. That's not what that means. What it means is that he always turned back to God. Job wasn't perfect the way we think of it. What we mean is Job's orientation is always toward God. He is always returning to God. He's always repenting. And so Job is an upright individual. Job is also a very rich individual. He's also, you're going to find out, very respected. So I want you to think about Job. He's a rich guy, he's respected, and he's God-fearing. He's blameless, he's upright. So he is a past president of the Chamber of Commerce in Uz. He is a member of the Uz Golf and Country Club. He uh, does give a lot to the Uz Allied Arts and uh, that kind of thing. In other words, I want you to think about, and this is brilliant. This is, God is so brilliant. If you stop and think about it for a minute, and if I asked you, what is the perfect Christian look like? Have you ever thought about that? What is the perfect Christian? Well, kind of the model Christian, since we live in America, you will get a different answer in Africa. Since we live in America, we would say, well, 
Actually, it's Job. Somebody who's really uh, devoted to God, faithful, blameless. They probably are affluent, yeah, and they give money to the poor and they do that kind of thing. And they're well-respected in the community. If you think about it, most of us think about who's the perfect Christian? Well, they probably fit this description. Now, I'm not sure God would answer that question that way, but we do. I like that for this reason. Job is you and me. Job is, bring him forward 3,800 years, and he would look like the model paragon Christian leader. So we're going to study a 3,800-year-old story that is as fresh today as it was then. So that's what we know about Job. Blameless, rich, respected. Think about him as the perfect Christian. So, scene shift. We go from, well, I'll stop here since we have a question, but that's end of scene one. We meet Job and we're on the earth. We're now about to go somewhere Job doesn't know and see some things he never knows about. He doesn't even know this at the end of the story. Pause for questions. What else do we know about us? Has it been documented or cited in any other places? I didn't hear the last part of that. I'm sorry. What else do we know about us? Has it been documented or cited in other places? Yeah. What do we know about us? Has it been documented? Uh, have there been any sites uncovered? The nature of this story, well, us is basically a little detective story, and I don't have time to go into it, but it's really kind of cool because you don't hear about us exactly anywhere else, but that phrase, the people of the East, remember it said he was the greatest of the people of the East? That phrase is used other places, and it's typically used of people who live in Northern Arabia in those contexts. And so you just sort of surmise, well, maybe... Uz was in Northern Arabia because Job uses that phrase and some other places use that phrase. It, the nature of this, it does not lend itself to archeology. span In other words, you're not likely to dig something up out of Northern Arabia and go, oh my gosh, here's an inscription. Thanks to our great benefactor, Job, who built this YMCA for us. Probably not gonna be justified archeologically, but kind of a little semantic detective work. And that's pretty much all we know about Uz that it probably is in Northern Arabia. Well, let's shift the scene and let's move to heaven. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. We'll talk more about him in a second. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. So not only does Job think he's blameless and upright, this is important. God thinks he's blameless and upright. He says he is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Hashtag blessed. You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. He's like, come on, God. He's rich, he's respected, he's paragon of a Christian virtue. Of course he serves you. You have given him everything a person could want. He says, but if you stretch out your hand and you strike everything he has, he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has 
is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So let me pause there for a minute. I want to talk about the characters a little bit. Satan is a very interesting character. First of all, you have angels. This is the scene written in the typical throne room kind of a genre of the time. In other words, you see the angels coming before God, kind of an audience before the king. And uh, you kind of see this scene, by the way, in Revelation also at the end of the New Testament. So they come before God and Satan comes. Satan is one of these angels, one of these spiritually created beings. But Satan's name is interesting because it's not actually a name, it's a title. So in Hebrew, it's Hasatan, the Satan. And it means the accuser, the deceiver. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in the New Testament, he's going to call Satan the ruler of this world. He's going to and fro among the earth. Why? Do you think he's like you know the little angel who's out here to bless people? No, he's trying to get converts. He's already rebelling against God. And yet he comes to God and he is the accuser. He is the adversary. For example, in uh, the Old Testament book of Zechariah, he's one of the minor prophets later on. And in the New Testament book of Revelation, Satan is called the accuser, the deceiver. And you're going to see that is exactly the role that he plays. So this is an angel who is called the Satan. And we then get his name as Satan. But you can define him by what he does. And so notice what he's doing here. He's making an accusation. In this book, he's going to make two accusations. He's the accuser. Here's his first accusation. He said, and I want you to personalize this. This is a story about Job, but Job is every man. We're going to draw conclusions about our suffering from what the Bible says about his. So what happens? He goes to heaven, and he, or he says to God, God says, you know, Job is righteous. I know you're trying to corrupt the whole world, but look at Job. Satan says, well, of course. He said, here's my accusation. He only serves you. And by the way, Satan's accusing you of the same thing. He's accusing me of this. We are only faithful to God as long as he doesn't mess with our stuff. So, and, and there's some truth in this, and I'm, I'm not trying to be um, indelicate, but you know when bad things, really bad things happen to us? I remember when my parents died. I remember um, when my mom died, it was unjust. And I'll just leave it at that. The point is, she should not have died. And so there was a sense of, wow, this should not have happened. And so there's a feeling of, wow, this is a waste. This could have been prevented. This, this shouldn't have happened. And there's a possibility that I could have turned to God and say, how could you let that happen? This didn't need to happen. She didn't need to die this young. This was a mistake. This was somebody did something that, that shouldn't have been done. I could have turned to God and say, why in the world did you let that happen? Well, that's what Satan's saying. He says, you know why Terry serves you? You take care of him. I'll tell you what, you let something unjust happen to him and watch. He'll be in here before you know it saying, hey, you broke our deal. That's what Satan is accusing you and me of, and it's what he's accusing Job of. He said, yeah, Job's going to serve you just as long as you keep taking care of him. That's a powerful accusation if you stop and think about it. Um, as a matter of fact, this is exactly what Sigmund Freud said. Sigmund Freud, you guys all know who Sigmund Freud is, 20th century father of psychoanalysis, uh, groundbreaking ideas about uh, psychology. Freud did not believe in God. And the reason that Freud did not believe in God is he felt like 
God was a myth, a creation in our minds to spare ourselves from unhappiness. In other words, what, what Freud was saying is, you believe in God, oh, he's not there. You believe in him because you want a kind of a cosmic daddy who will take care of you. In fact, you want this deal. You want to say, God, I will serve you. I'll go to church 2.5 times a month. I'll serve in the nursery, you know, 12 times a year. I'll do all this stuff and you take care of me and keep anything really bad from happening to me. Freud said, that's all there is to this. He said, there isn't even really a God. You just do that because you need some kind of hope that bad things won't happen to you and maybe this God will keep that from happening. Now, I don't believe that, but you see Freud's point is a lot like Satan's point. Now, Satan obviously believes God exists because he does, but he says, even so, even if Job thinks you exist and knows you exist, if you take his stuff away and you let bad things happen to him, he won't. He'll leave you. You got a deal. And if you don't keep your end of the deal, he's out of here. That's his accusation. And God calls his bluff. He says, okay, you can't touch him, but you can have all of his stuff. Let's see. And so that's what, exactly what Satan does. He takes off. There's an interesting point here that we might as well address now. If you haven't asked a question about this, it's just a matter of time. So stop and think about this. Everything that's about to happen to Job, God knows it's going to happen to Job. Now, you, I want you to see two ideas here. Number one, Satan does not have the power on his own. He is not equal to God. He can't just do anything he wants. Like, I'm in charge here, and God, you are powerless, and I'm going to do whatever I want. The book of Job doesn't portray Satan that way. Satan is a created being. He does not have the power that God has. <clears throat> the second point, though, is this. Uh, probably expressed really well this way. <clears throat> Pardon me. Robert Alden, commentator, says it this way. Many Christians would like to blame the devil for all manner of unpleasantness, from minor occasions of bad luck to the most severe of human tragedies, loss of wealth, children, health, honor. But the message of Job... <clears throat> is that nothing happens to us that is not ultimately controlled by the knowledge, love, wisdom, and power of our God of all comfort. So what is he saying and what does this text seem to be saying to us? God is not going to cause what happens to Job. But I mean, he will not be the proximate cause, what's called the proximate cause. Proximate cause is the person who actually punched you in the jaw. But he is somewhat responsible in that he allows that to happen. So the problem of evil and suffering is a little more complicated than we think. And the idea is, even if God isn't punishing you, isn't smiting you, isn't doing these things, which you're not going to see that at all in the book of Job, you're not going to see that being God's character, yet he, does he not bear some responsibility for allowing it to happen. Hold that thought because the book of Job is going to address that also. Let me pause and see if we have a, a question here before we go on to the final scene. A couple of questions. Is the book of Job an allegory or is Job actually a real man? Great question. Is the book of Job an allegory or is Job a real man? Okay, so let me see if I can answer this without alienating half of you. <clears throat> For my purposes, I will answer this question, but for my purposes, I'm going to say this. 
if you think about it as an allegory, we will be fine through the rest of this study. In other words, if you think this is an allegory, you will get the exact same ideas out of this. I think this happened, and there are two reasons I think this happened, but I'd rather wait till the end to tell you. In other words, I want you to see the story of Job, address these questions, then I think it will be clearer why I think this actually happened. But for now, we'll just go on holding hands, allegory and reality. I will answer that, but let's do the story first. Why would Satan ever have an audience with God? Isn't there a gulf fixed between the righteous and the unrighteous? Uh, the question is, how could Satan get an audience with God? Is there not a gulf between the righteous and the unrighteous? Okay, so I want you not to project into this time in history what Revelation 20 looks like, which is that end of history. There is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a judgment. The Bible's clear about that. That has not happened yet. There is the fall of Satan. People argue whether or not that has happened yet or not at the time of Job. Doesn't matter to me for the purposes of what we're talking about, but it's obviously true that angels and even Satan can come into the presence of God because God permits it. Now, Revelation, which that's way further in the future, says the devil and his angels, meaning he's an angel and the others that are in rebellion with him, are thrown into the fire. In other words, they are judged and they are punished. That has not happened yet, so that's a good question. But here, apparently, we are before, we are obviously before that time. Okay? <clears throat> Let's go to scene three. Back to the earth. One day, and it's a bad day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. That's a another people group at the time. They're, they're known from other sources. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans, Babylonians, formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. So let's just stop for a second. What just happened? <clears throat> Think modern Job. Job's sitting in his office. Messenger comes in and says, well, I have bad news. We were way too heavily invested in cyber currency, and Bitcoin has gone down the toilet. And unfortunately, you know the tech stocks that we had? Big bubble, it burst. Actually, Job, you're bankrupt. You own nothing at this point. He has lost everything that he owns. So he's sitting there thinking, I can't even get an Uber home. My credit cards aren't gonna work. He is devastated. He's financially wiped out. But Satan doesn't stop there. As long as he doesn't touch Job, he's good. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind, think tornado, swept in from the desert and struck the house, the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. So Job, this is a great 
picture, Renaissance uh, picture, trying to capture the pathos of this, what's happened. Job, in a single day, has suffered unjustly, unfairly, events that wiped out all of his, what's most precious to him, his children, and all of everything that he owns. He is a ruined man. He is grief-stricken, of course, but he's also ruined. He can't make next month's payment to the Uz Golf and Country Club. His lifestyle is going to change. He's about to find out that you go from being respected and rich to absolutely nothing immediately. And this happens to dramatize and to emphasize the idea of the severity and the viciousness of Satan. You know, I've said this before, but, and I'm really not trying to scare you, but this is what the Bible says. Satan wants to destroy you. If you think about why does God let Satan around at all, think about what he's restraining Satan from doing. Satan wants to destroy you, and not just right now. Satan wants to destroy you forever, for eternity. Well, you see this, whoa, this is so wrong. I mean, you think about this story and you go, this is so wrong. Why in the world does this happen to a guy who's upright, he's generous, he's respected? You see the point? The Bible is going to take head on this question, and it's not going to take it on in a little way like, oh, you know, Job had some surgery that didn't go well, and you know, he was sick for six months. No, no, no. We're just going to go, God says, let's just make this as unjust as you can imagine, and then I want to tackle that question. So Job, after this happens, reacts, and I think it's really worth looking at how Job reacts to this. At this, once he found out, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. These are signs of grief in that culture. He tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship and he said. These are probably some of the most famous words. I mean, people that that don't know much about the Bible have probably heard these words. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So let's think about this for just a minute. Uh, There's some interesting lessons out of this. First of all, was Satan right? Not at this point. He said, you do this, he will curse you. He will turn to you and go, what is the deal? You know, you are useless to me, God. Curse you. You know, it looks to me like I'm alone in the world. Can't count on you for anything. That's what Satan said would happen, but it's not what happened. And, you know, you and I have that same temptation. When things happen to us in life, you know, one of the things is we look to the power that says, why? Why did you let this happen? And Job is going to ask that question a lot, and God is okay with that. So we'll see that as it unfolds. The second thing is this idea of the view of man. I want you to think about how you think about who we are. For example, in our culture, there is, and this is so crazy, uh, and I won't get into it, but people who believe in evolution also believe that we are the pinnacle of creation. We are the pinnacle of the world. In other words, we are, every, we are what evolution was aiming at. We are the end point. We are the awesome thing. It's the old saying that the Greeks had, man is the measure of all things. Everything should be compared to us because we're the peak. If you're an evolutionist, that actually makes no sense whatsoever. 
because you got here by accident and who knows what's coming after you. You see what I'm saying? But we think that. We tend to think of ourselves as what all of history has tried to get us to where we are. What's more accurate and what some other people believe is man is a naked ape. And some of you wives are going, tell me about it. You know, <laughs> he acts like an ape. He's got the manners of an ape, yeah. But the point is, evolutionarily speaking, we're just another animal, right? We are just another animal. And so we're not much different than anybody else. We're not gonna act much different than anybody else. And there are real implications of this. For example, if we are just another animal, <clears throat> which is the evolutionary position, I ask you this question, what does one animal owe another animal? You, got, you don't have a court of law, and you say to the lion, hey, you can only eat one gazelle a week. I mean, come on, we gotta be fair here. What does one animal owe another animal? How could you say to the lion, you are evil for eating all these other creatures? They are scared to death of you, and you are literally killing them and cutting short their life. Do you not realize that <clears throat> They were counting on this guy for, uh, to support the kids and send them through college. Now they're going to have to drop out and get a job. Nobody says that. It makes no sense, does it? There is no good and evil in that scheme. However, our view of man, the Bible's view of man, mankind, is that we are created by God, imbued with God's image, and therefore we have value. And the reason I want to say that to you, I don't, this isn't a philosophical idea. I want you to just think about this. The only way that you know that there is such a thing as unjust suffering, that bad things are happening to good people, the only way you even have that idea is by assuming that we matter. You see what I'm trying to say? You actually have to assume there's a God before you can even say there's such a thing as unjust suffering. So the question itself, and we're going to walk around this question, and when we get through, you're going to have a good feeling about, I understand what the Bible and what God has to say about suffering, whether it's deserved or it's undeserved. But the point, the first point that I want to make is, if you don't believe in God, you can't even ask the question. I mean, you do. People do ask this question, but it makes no sense. So evolutionist says to Terry, why do bad things happen to good people? Terry says to evolutionist, what's a bad thing and what's a good person? What? One animal's doing stuff to another animal. What's your point? In other words, it's not a meaningful question, but it is a meaningful question because we've been wired to want to do right. We have a deep idea of, we call it fairness, but it's even more than that. We have a deep desire embedded in us that you matter and it's not okay to do bad things to you. Everybody has that. You can call it a conscience, you can call it anything you want, but every civilization, every person has that embedded in them. So it's a fair question to ask. And Job turns to God, and this is the interesting thing. If you think about why is Job blameless and upright, because even in his worst moment, where does he go? He turns to God. Does he understand? No. Is he grief-stricken? Yes. Is he gonna become angry with God? Is he gonna become depressed? I mean, he's gonna have some clinical depression here in the next chapter. So, you know, I mean, seriously, Job is down, and yet where does he go? My hope if, comes from God. And he turns to God, and he said, you know, I didn't come into this world with anything. None of those things were really mine, and I'm gonna leave this world without any of those things. The Lord gave them to me. The Lord took them away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I have to confess to you, I don't usually respond quite that well. 
right? When the tech bubble hit and my stocks got wiped out, all three of them, my point is, is I tend to react like, oh no, this is terrible, right? I don't tend to react like this. And so what do you see happening here? You see God taking the worst, most unjust, I mean, there's just, this is crazy. You're gonna let Satan do this just because he accused him? Come on, this is not fair. And Satan does do this, and Job reacts really well. In other words, you see what, the story of Job wants to tackle this question head on. God is not dodging the question. He said, I'll tell you what, I don't wanna talk about a little issue, I wanna talk about a big issue. I'm gonna take the best guy you know, and I'm gonna take the worst stuff that could happen to him. Now let's dig into this idea of suffering. I like the Bible because it doesn't shy away. God says, he's not saying, I'm not gonna dodge the question. This is not a politician answer. Like, well, I'm gonna shade this, I'm gonna shade that. He goes, no, I'll tell you what, I'll do you one better. I'll take the best guy of his time, the most righteous man in the whole place, and I'll do the worst stuff you can imagine. I will let that happen to him. And now let's talk about this issue. That's what the story of Job is about. It's basically about taking this worst situation and letting it play itself out. There's uh, another interesting passage, and I love that idea of naked I came, naked I will depart. This is back in Genesis. Now we're back to Adam and Eve. We're way before Job, Abraham, anybody. But if you remember this, when the Adam and Eve sin, when they rebel against God, God curses Adam. He said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, uh, cursed is the ground because of you. Though painful, uh, through painful toil, you'll eat of it. I will produce thorns and thistles. In other words, this world is fallen with you. The world is not gonna be a pleasant place. This is where pain and suffering start. There's not pain and suffering in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve rebelled, pain and suffering come into the world, into all the world, not just them, into all the world. But at the end, look at this. He said, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. It's a cute little play. The word Adam means dirt. In other words, he made Adam out of Adam. In other words, he made this thing, called him dirt. Sort of like if you had kids and you had a boy and a girl and you named them boy and girl. Well, he names Adam dust. I made you from the dust and I breathe life into you. You matter. But it's just interesting he said, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. And so you get this idea of putting mankind in perspective, high perspective. We have value. We matter. There is good. There is evil. There is unjust suffering because we are imbued with God's image. And at the same time, we are temporary in this form. All the things that we own do not last forever. One of the best questions you can ask yourself when you're thinking about what to invest your life in is, what lasts forever? And so Job is finding out that stocks and bonds and donkeys and camels don't last forever, and he understands that. And so he says, naked I came, and to, and, uh, to that I will also return. So let's address one more question before we go into the next session. We're gonna, by the way, Satan's not through. He's like, drats, he really handled that well. But I have another accusation, and we'll talk about that in our next session. But before we leave that, I wanna uh, kind of start to get to the question of, well, how is it that, a, that God lets bad things happen to good people? Keller has a, and by the way, I really recommend this book to you. He talks about, in each chapter, talks about different hard questions 
The Reason for God, it's not a new book, but it's really quite well done, very biblically solid. It tells you what the Bible says about these topics. If you have a God who's great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, well, that's what we're basically asking. We're saying, look, you got some responsibility here. Why do you let bad things happen to good people? There's an assumption in that, isn't it? That God is great enough and transcendent enough that he could make it different. I mean, you wouldn't blame him if he didn't have any power, right? That's why, by the way, that book uh, that was written decades ago, you know, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People by a Jewish rabbi, and the answer was, God would love to help, but he can't. Well, if that were the case, that's not even a fair question, but that's not what we believe, and that's not what the Bible says. So, and this is an interesting point that Keller makes, if you have a God that's big enough to make a difference, and big enough then to be mad at because he hasn't stopped all the evil and suffering in the world, then you also have, at the same time, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you cannot know. As a matter of fact, you can't have it both ways. In other words, what he's saying is, you actually have to say, God, you should have prevented it, meaning I know and I will tell you there is no good reason for this. God goes, really? Remember what Kreft said? In order to judge a situation, you kind of need to know how the story ends. That's what God is doing with the book of Job. He's gonna show us this story from a bird's eye view and we're gonna get to see how the whole thing ends. And so we won't be trapped in a moment in time. So when we're going through difficulties and suffering, we go, this just seems unfair, it seems unjust, it seems right, I've been accused wrongly. Um, Something bad has happened to me and I've done everything I could to avoid it. It's not fair. It's not right. When that happens to us, we're not left caught thinking, I sure hope God has a good, good reason for this. You get to see it played out in Job's life. And by the end of this, this uh, story, we are going to see how God wants to answer that question. And it is not what you think. Well, let me pause. We'll take a few questions before we finish. Could it be said that we don't really understand what is just and fair as it pertains to suffering and injustice? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first part of that one. My fault. Can it be said that we don't really understand what's right. just and fair? Yeah, can it be said, is it a fair observation to say, we don't actually know what is just and what is fair? You just hit my hot button. This may have come from somebody in our Sunday school class because you know my hot button on this fairness thing. We definitely, in my opinion, do not know what is just and what is fair. And you're gonna see that theme come out later in a few, a few lessons. God and Job are gonna have that very discussion. Job's gonna say, I will prove to you this isn't fair and this isn't just. And wait till you hear God's answer. It's really interesting answer. So I would say that that is correct. Now, at the same time, I would say, but we do have wired in us a sense that there is such a thing as just and fair, and I might not be a very good judge. In other words, I might favor my friends and be a little harder on my enemies. And you might say, Terry, you're not being fair. You're not being just. But you and I both know there is such a thing as fairness and justice. We just know that humans, and, and I believe America does this as well as any country better than any country in the world. We are fairer and more just, in my opinion, than any country in the world. And yet, 
I don't think any of us would say, oh, we're doing great. No, we, we have too much injustice in our country, don't we? And yet I believe we are the best. So yes, I would say that that's largely accurate, that we don't really know what real justice is, but we know there is such a thing, and we crave to have that justice. And so for the next week, you're going to just need to crave that justice because we're going to, in our next lesson, we're going to hear Satan's second accusation. So the way this plays out is Satan accuses, God says, do your worst. Job says, I still serve God. Satan is going to go back, scene change, back to heaven and say, wait a minute, I have one more accusation. And then we're going to begin the story of Job and how he deals with this. So in our next lesson, we're gonna talk about Satan's other accusation. The first accusation is you and I, and by the way, he's, Satan is making these accusations against us. You and I only serve God as long as he takes care of us, whatever that may mean to you. As long as he doesn't let anything too bad happen, then I'm, I'm good. When Job said, no, in fact, that's not why I serve God. I will serve God even if you take my stuff. Satan's gonna come back and make a second accusation against you next time, and it's gonna be one that's also gonna resonate with us, and we'll see how Job reacts then. Oh, did I mention next week we'll meet Job's wife? Things get complicated. I'll see you then. Thanks, guys.